Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this presentation. At the conclusion of part two of this podcast, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, writer and poet Charles Bukowski. Freed from the daily grind, Bukowski also began to give readings of his poetry to live audiences. These frequently raucous and free-form affairs would encourage Bukowski to behave with drunken condescension to his audience and prompt post-reading parties fraught with more alcohol, quarrels with whatever girlfriend was along, and even physical violence and destruction of the home of anyone unfortunate enough to host such an event. These readings only added to Bukowski's appeal and underground notoriety. As he grew in popularity, he decided that raising his fee to $1,000 per event would discourage most sponsors. Instead, demand only increased. Bukowski's heavy alcohol consumption was prompted by nervousness and a general unease around crowds and people, especially those he considered to be too intellectual, pompous, or academic. Bukowski would publish his second novel, Factotum, in 1975. This novel was an autobiographical account of Bukowski's menial work career as a younger man. It would be reviewed in the New York Times, the last sentence even comparing it favorably to Orwell's Down and Out in London and Paris. His column remained a longtime weekly feature of the Los Angeles Free Press after Open City folded, and his works were featured across the literary spectrum from Black Sparrow to various pornographic magazines that to Bukowski were merely sexually graphic hack work written for a buck. The writer's penchant for typically pushing the envelope was underlined by the story The Fiend, an account of child rape from the perspective of the rapist. His publisher, John Martin, refused to publish it. Instead, it appeared in Hustler. By now, Bukowski had relocated to 5437 2 fifths Carlton Way, an apartment near Western and Hollywood Boulevard, one of the seediest intersections of the city. His neighbors included the manager of a nearby pornographic bookstore, an exotic dancer, and the doorman for a local massage parlor, Bordello. Despite such a seemingly unappealing environment, Bukowski was continually approached via telephone, letter, and in person by many women, both attracted and curious about who he really was. These encounters prompted several relationships, which were utterly dysfunctional and occasionally violent. Linda King was an aspiring actress who ultimately turned to poetry and sculpting when her acting career went nowhere. Through her L.A. poetry connections, she met Bukowski and asked to sculpt his likeness. After visiting him in 1970 at his DeLongpre apartment, she was initially turned off by his flab, age, and drunkenness, but over time she became attracted to him enough to insist upon a makeover before they got involved. An indication of Bukowski's interest was his willingness to cut back on alcohol and to lose weight while pursuing this relationship. Unfortunately, neither would remain monogamous during their subsequent five-year involvement, and this stormy relationship frequently deteriorated to one party tormenting or abusing the other. 
Acquaintances of Bukowski could immediately gauge the current situation by the presence of Linda's remarkable sculpted likeness in the DeLongpre residence. If it was missing, Linda and Hank had broken it off, usually temporarily. This break became permanent in 1975 after a raucous incident involving Linda smashing out the windows of Bukowski's Carlton Way apartment with books she had stolen from the home's interior. She had reason to be angry after having suffered numerous taunts meant to inspire jealousy and even suffering blackened eyes as a result of Bukowski's previous physical violence. Ultimately, only the bust of Bukowski survived this relationship. Linda possesses it to this day. If Linda King was on Bukowski's bohemian wavelength, Pamela Cupcakes Miller was something else entirely. Voted 1973 Miss Pussycat, a designation sponsored by L.A.'s premier pornographic theater of the same name, this 23-year-old natural redhead with stunning looks and a spectacular torso had Bukowski behaving like a lovesick puppy. Although she enjoyed the wild intensity of Bukowski's everyday life, his poetry left her unmoved and ultimately she found his possessiveness and jealousy unattractive. It was literally after Cupcakes abruptly abandoned a Bukowski reading at the Troubadour Theater that a woman named Linda Lee Bailey introduced herself to the distraught author. The proprietor of a natural food restaurant in Redondo Beach, she slowly became the central female in Bukowski's life, and ultimately the source of Bukowski's decision to leave gritty East Hollywood for the southern Los Angeles suburb of San Pedro. While this move to a two-story home was certainly a step up, it was still a working-class neighborhood between the wealthy enclave of Palos Verdes and the industrial refinery areas and port terminals of Wilmington and Long Beach. This transition was certainly aided by his European sales, especially in Germany, where hundreds of thousands of his books had sold and he was a cultural celebrity. Allegedly, an accountant suggested that a mortgage payment would be a good investment to offset taxes accrued from Bukowski's growing income. While still an underground figure in the U.S., Bukowski's stature in Europe was underlined by his October 1978 appearance on such programs as the French intellectual television show Apostrophe, hosted by Bernard Pivot. The central guest around a round table of celebrities, Bukowski was drinking wine out of the bottle and quickly got involved in a profane, drunken exchange with the host. Mid-show, he decided that the interview was a waste of time and staggered out, propping himself up on the head of one of the other guests as the audience looked on with amused incredulity. Bukowski had already given readings in sold-out venues in Germany and visited with his uncle in his birthplace of Andernach. This trip would evolve into the photo essay entitled, Shakespeare Never Did This. Probably prodded by Linda, Bukowski would also place the only rancorous phone call he ever made to John Martin, essentially a complaint that his monthly stipend was too small, and he never received any formal accounting of Black Sparrow's book sales. Probably intoxicated, Bukowski did not remember the call the next day, but Martin assured him that he would send the writer an accounting every six months. It was wise of Bukowski to get his business affairs in order. His next novel, entitled Women, was finally released in December of 1978 and quickly became his best-selling novel. This work was an extremely unflattering description of the various female relationships that Bukowski had experienced in the prior decade. It would eventually fuel criticism of him as a misogynist, an abuser, incapable of involvement in a positive, enriching, monogamous relationship.
It would also be described as among Bukowski's best and most humorous efforts, with no character more pathetically memorable than himself. The former women in his life were uniformly hurt and dismayed by their depictions, which they described as simplistically unfair or inaccurate. Linda King was depicted as unstably irrational and provocatively flirtatious. Years later, she would shrug this off by saying that he was still angry at her and wanted to trash her in front of the whole world. More troubled was Pamela Cupcakes Miller, who was labeled as drug-addicted, mindless, manipulative, detached, and unfaithful. Pamela, who settled down and ultimately became a successful real estate broker, especially chafed at her depiction as a prostitute who raised cash by sleeping around with the various men she cheated with during her relationship with Bukowski, something she vigorously denied. Joanna Bull, another occasional lover, depicted poorly, probably summed up the worldly reality of these fictionalized characterizations. What was he going to say? That we had a sane relationship? That we sat like two civilized people having refined conversation? John Martin later commented that Bukowski had achieved literary success with these sorts of descriptions, and so he deliberately made his female characters even more hysterically unstable and unattractive, and his protagonist even more heartlessly uncaring. If Bukowski was cold and inconsiderate to his exes, his devotion to his boyhood writing idol, John Fonte, remained unabated. In the late 70s, he encouraged John Martin to publish some of Fonte's work, long out of print, and Martin set out to discover whether the author was even still alive. Fonte was still alive, living on the fringes of L.A., broke after years of struggling to make a living as a screenwriter, suffering from diabetes, which eventually brought with it amputations and blindness. In 1980, he agreed to allow Black Sparrow to release his early novels and completed via dictation to his wife a final novel before his death in 1983. Much of Fonte's work remains in print today, and Bukowski's frequent mention and public praise has assured the writer a healthy legacy. Although he was over 60, Charles Bukowski was just hitting the stride of his professional life. With money rolling in, he no longer gave public readings, and his life settled into a daily, rigid, if undemanding routine. He got up late and then headed out in his newly purchased expensive 320i BMW sedan. Opening the sunroof and tuning into a classical music station, Bukowski would head to whatever Southern California track was featuring live racing. Santa Anita, Hollywood, Del Mar, it didn't matter. He would bet a modest amount and then return home to have dinner with Linda Lee. Then he would grab a bottle of wine and head to his writing study, working late into the night. Supposedly, he began writing at around 6.30 p.m., precisely the time he habitually clocked into the general mail facility night shift. As Bukowski's productivity remained prolific and his fame increased, invariably the movie industry came calling. The most serious inquiry came from a then-unknown aspiring French director named Barbet Schroeder, who commissioned Bukowski to write an autobiographical screenplay. The composition of the screenplay and the various production twists and turns of this film, ultimately entitled Barfly, took up much of the 80s. During this time period, Schroeder became close enough to Bukowski to film massive amounts of film footage, mostly of the author pontificating or reminiscing about his life, footage that would eventually be edited into a two-part video cassette entitled The Charles Bukowski Tapes, which one critic described as one of the most intimate, revealing, and unsparing glimpses any film or video has ever given us of a writer's life and personality. 
The film features such poignant moments as Bukowski becoming unable to discuss his parents and childhood while visiting the interior of his boyhood home and a convertible automobile tour of his old East Hollywood neighborhood. It also includes a disturbing and frightening late-night exchange between Bukowski and Linda Lee, which degenerates into a vile, obscenity-filled tirade from the writer threatening to legally expel her from their residence because of her late-night absences. This exchange visually captured the volatility of Bukowski's relationship with Linda Lee. Their domestic situation was anything but idyllic with her moving out of the San Pedro home several times throughout the 80s. These splits were complicated by Linda's understanding that she would never have a child if she remained with Bukowski long term. Nevertheless, on March 20, 1985, Bukowski proposed and Linda accepted, the wedding taking place on August 18, 1985. It was a predictably atraditional affair, taking place in the Philosophical Research Society's Church of the People, the officiant, a frequent commentator on UFOs and the occult, the reception occurring at a San Pedro Thai restaurant. In 1984, Bukowski had already amended his will twice, leaving half of his considerable and growing estate to his future wife. Bukowski's prolific output continued. Poems, short story collections, and the 1982 novel Ham on Rye, and a typically humorless account of his difficult childhood. His dalliance with Hollywood also proceeded with a young Sean Penn attempting to put together a deal to make the Schroeder film with him portraying Hank Chinaski and Dennis Hopper directing, effectively acing out Barbet Schroeder. Although Schroeder would be paid a sizable producer's fee to essentially go away, both he and Bukowski disliked Hopper, and no agreement was forthcoming. A 1981 film, Tales of Ordinary Madness, was successfully produced from a collection of Bukowski stories published under a similar title, the copyright owned by Lawrence Ferlinghetti of City Lights Bookstore fame. This film, a collaboration between Italian director Marco Ferreri and actor Ben Gazzara, was a disaster that Bukowski, although pleased that a film was made derived from his work, eventually disavowed, opining that the film was way too Hollywoodized and sanitized to bear any resemblance to him or his stories. A flop in the U.S., the movie's modest success in Europe was probably more of a tribute to Bukowski's stature there than anything else. More impactful on Bukowski was the DUI he received after leaving the film's Hollywood premiere. Eventually, Barbet Schroeder's perseverance would be rewarded, and in 1987, Canon Films agreed to finance Barfly, which starred Mickey Rourke and Faye Dunaway. The latter was miscast, but Rourke, whether accurate or not, brought a distinct personality to his character that propelled the film to indie success and a curiosity about Bukowski and his work. Typically, Bukowski rejected requests to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and an interview with 60 Minutes, but was the subject of a lengthy interview on set with film critic Roger Ebert. Bukowski was also profiled in People magazine. Bukowski's experience with Barfly became the subject of his next novel, Hollywood, an extremely critical, thinly disguised perspective on the making of the film and the various industry celebrities he encountered. By 1989, Bukowski was in his late 60s. His body began to wear out after years of abuse, and he was actually diagnosed with tuberculosis, dormant since childhood, but resurgent as a result of stress and debilitation. 
A lengthy dose of antibiotics prompted Bukowski to give up alcohol, and he would never resume his heavy consumption, his body no longer able to tolerate the effects of heavy drinking. Although the gift of a Macintosh computer from his daughter was eagerly implemented and streamlined Bukowski's creative process, even he began to realize that he was closer to the end than the beginning. Perhaps this emotion crept into the remarkable productivity of his last years, including another novel, Pulp, and one of his lengthiest and best poetry collections, The Last Night of the Earth Poems. Pulp was not only a send-up of the cliché detective novel, it was also a self-deprecating tribute to mediocre writing itself. Included in The Last Night was the poem The Bluebird, an introspective attempt to reveal the real personality underneath Bukowski's crude, vulgar, and even angry crust. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke, and the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? You want to screw up the works? You want to blow my book sales in Europe? There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever. I only let him out at night sometimes, when everybody's asleep. I say, I know that you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back, but he's singing a little in there. I haven't quite let him die. And we sleep together like that, with our secret pact. And it's nice enough to make a man weep, but I don't weep. Do you? In 1993, Bukowski was diagnosed with myelogenist leukemia. He was treated with chemotherapy, which sapped his strength and caused his hair to fall out. He gave up alcohol entirely and spent his days without working on much of anything, instead contemplating his life and accomplishments. He again changed his will, leaving his entire estate to his wife, Linda Lee. Although he remained close to his daughter, Marina, it has never been determined what financial provisions he may or may not have made for her. Married with one son, she and her husband are employed in Northern California in the IT industry. Although Bukowski's cancer was briefly in remission, it returned in late 1993. Medically, there was nothing that could be done. In March of 1994, Bukowski contracted pneumonia and returned to San Pedro Peninsula Hospital. He died there on March 9, 1994. Charles Bukowski was buried at Green Hills Memorial Cemetery after a funeral attended by friends, including Sean Penn and publisher John Martin, who both spoke at the service. While the cemetery is located in the wealthy enclave of Rancho Palos Verdes, Bukowski's grave is on a hillside overlooking the port of San Pedro. His epitaph reads simply, Don't try, an allusion to the idea that if you're going to an attempt an artistic or unconventional lifestyle, don't do it half-heartedly. Go all the way. At the time of his death, Bukowski's monthly salary from John Martin was $7,000, quite a raise from the original one hundred. Martin could certainly afford it. In 2002, he would eventually sell the rights to Bukowski, John Fonte, and Paul Bowles to HarperCollins for several million dollars. Bukowski would have been gratified by the obituary that appeared on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, a far cry from the night his father threw his typewriter on the front lawn. He might have been saddened by the news that the first thing Ruben Rueda, 
his longtime bartender at the famous Musso and Frank's restaurant did upon hearing of Bukowski's death was to cancel the restaurant's standing order for the sweet German white wine that only Bukowski drank. For 50 years, Rueda had served patrons including John Wayne, Orson Welles, and Gore Vidal, but he counted Bukowski as the most memorable. Rueda occasionally even drove Bukowski home when he was too drunk to drive, would forcefully suggest that it was time for the frolic room, the edgy dive down Hollywood Boulevard when the writer got too ornery for any of the other patrons. In July of 2007, a dispute concerning Charles Bukowski's former residence at 5124 DeLongpre Avenue, the home where he wrote Post Office and where his likeness was famously sculpted by Linda King, arose. Speculators had purchased the entire court, surrounded it with a chain-link fence, and pronounced it on Craigslist as a wonderful $1.3 million candidate for demolition and development. Instead, a grassroots campaign got the city's Cultural Heritage Commission to designate the building as a city monument and prohibited it from demolition. Despite the owners and their attorneys' attempts to discredit Bukowski as a Nazi sympathizer and a devotee of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, really. Bukowski would have probably considered this entire episode utterly appropriate. Perhaps no one could sum up the unique life, style, and worldview of Charles Bukowski better than the man himself in his short story, Flower Horse, a tale in which he overcomes a colossal hangover, the distraction of other twisted racetrack patrons, and his own stupidity to assemble a winning day at the races. The conclusion finds him making his way home, savoring his modest success in escaping the mundane reality of the workaday existence of his fellow human beings, at least for the moment. I lit a cigar. Well, I thought, let's not deny it. Genius just can't be held down. With that thought, I started my 57 Plymouth. I drove with great care and courtesy. I hummed the Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky Concerto in D major for violin and orchestra. I had invented a word passage that covered the major theme, the major melody. Once more, we will be free again. Oh, once more, we will be free again, free again, free again. I drove out among the angry losers. Their unpaid for and highly insured cars were all they had left. They dared each other at mutilation and murder, zooming and slashing, not giving the inch. I made it to the exit at Century. My car stalled right at the turnout, blocking 45 cars behind me. I flipped the gas pedal rapidly with my foot, winked at the traffic cop, then hit the starter. It caught up, and I moved out, drove on through the smog. Los Angeles wasn't really a bad place. A good hustler could always make it.
Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Charles Bukowski. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Locked in the Arms of a Crazy Life by Howard Sounds and Charles Bukowski by Barry Miles. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Music